Good morning, Redemption City. So lovely to see all of you this morning. Um, in celebration and as a blessing for all the moms and mother figures in our congregation, Ken asked me to read Proverbs 31, verses 10 through 31. So we're going to start there. Um, yeah, in the word this morning. Um, Proverbs 31, starting in verse 10, is on page 517 in the Bible in the pew back in front of you. If you don't have a Bible but need one, please feel free to take one home with you um, and read it and know our Lord through its words. So again, Proverbs chapter 31, beginning in verse 10. An excellent wife, who can find? She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She is like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the distaff, and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful, and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands, and let her works praise her in the gates. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Abby. Good morning, everybody. I'd like to start out our sermon today by asking you a question. Uh, What do Roger Staubach and Jimmy Carter have in common? You think to yourself, okay, let me think for a minute. Let's see, Roger Staubach was a quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys, and he won a Super Bowl, and he's one of the top 100 players ever in the NFL. And Jimmy Carter is the 39th president of the United States. So they don't have in common anything with regard to their job. What else could they have in common? Well, both of them are truly committed disciples of Christ. They both have a desire to witness for their faith in public, in strong and vital ways. And interestingly, both of them created quite a public shock in the 1970s 
when they both said publicly that they had lusted after a woman in their heart. And the whole world kind of went, oh, oh my. But today, in accordance with Romans 132, if someone said that, you know what we would do? Yay. Good. You be you. Let's talk about that. That's really good. So what does the Bible say about lust? What does the Bible want us to think about and feel about and decide about with regard to that topic? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this chance to get into your word. And we pray, Father, that as we do, your word would guide us. Your word would teach us. Your word would challenge us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name with thanksgiving. Amen. So we are in the middle of a series, actually at the beginning of a series on the seven deadly sins. These sins were first uh, described, actually, by one of the desert fathers named Evagrius in the 300s. And then in the 500s, Gregory the Great kind of systematized it further. And then Thomas Aquinas, in his great big volumes on systematic theology, talked more about these sins. Before we actually get into our topic of lust today, I want to remind us of a couple of things, because I think it's important for us to lay this framework as we talk about these things probably every week. Our goal in this series is not to exalt nor to glorify sin. It is to expose sin so that we can see it in its depth, we can see it in its destructive ability, and therefore we can glorify the gospel and what the gospel does in helping us to overcome sin. Number two, no one is exempt. I want to underline this very seriously. No one is exempt from the possibility of falling into any one of these sins. So anybody that comes up here, in fact, I was actually thinking about speaking down there on the floor. Just to ensure to you that I don't come to this topic today, and no one comes to the word gluttony or vainglory or anything else that will follow as an expert and say, I've overcome this, guys. I've got the key. I've got the... No one is exempt from any of these sins. And then thirdly, because of that fact, we are the ones who can rest in the forgiveness of God based on the death and resurrection of Christ. So I want you to remember those three things, because as we talk about sin, we don't want to ever forget the gospel. But to make the gospel the gospel, we need to understand sin. So being a gospel in Christ-centered church means that we know why the gospel is necessary. And so for us to talk about sin, therefore, is an important thing to do. So what's my main theme? The main theme I want us to emphasize today, and I want us to remember, if you go home forgetting all the details, I want you to remember this one idea. Overcoming lust requires a gospel understanding and a gospel commitment. So overcoming lust requires a gospel understanding and a gospel commitment. It's interesting, lust is discussed both in the Old Testament and in the New. And this might shock you a bit, but the actual verb or the noun that we would translate lust in either the Hebrew Bible or the Greek New Testament actually is used in positive ways as well as negative ways. Let me give you a couple of the positive ways just so you can understand a little bit about that. Uh, Passover. Jesus desired to share the Passover with his disciples. Paul wants to see other people. He wants to visit people and see them and see their growth in Christ. 
A person who desires the role of an elder. That's the Greek word for lust. Desiring to see people grow in Christ, according to Hebrews 6, is what that author wanted to do. Even love for God and love for his word and seeing the salvation of God. All of those things, all of those things are translated with the word for lust. So what is the negative side of lust? The negative side, therefore, is what we would call an inordinate desire. Or as Augustine described it, as a disordered love. A disordered love. So it's, for us, we often tend to think of it as an improper sexual desire. But it's more than that and more comprehensive than that. And so we will talk about the first, but we're also going to talk about the whole of what the Bible teaches about this so that we understand when we talk about this, what we're talking about is something that is done in a wrong way, done for a wrong degree, or done for a wrong purpose. So the first one that comes to our mind, the first one that comes to everybody's mind, the first one that everyone probably thinks and says, oh my, I hope he's not going to spend the whole sermon talking about this but we are going to talk about it, is this, is that sexual desire outside of God's ordained relationship of one man and one woman in a covenant marriage is called lust. Matthew chapter 5, probably the most famous passage. We're going to look at several passages, so if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to flip to those pages. I'd like you to look in your Bible as opposed to looking on the screen. I want you to see in the text what the text says. Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 30. Jesus is talking in the Sermon on the Mount, and he says this, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. And everybody knew that there. Old Testament covenant law given by Moses, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, as someone who is a prophet speaking God's word, the Lord says unto you, everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her already has committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Before we talk about those verses, I'd like you to go all the way back to Job. Job chapter 31. Because in Job we have a very similar concept that Job gives to us. And a similar response as it were, to what lust does. Job chapter 31, verse 1, first of all, says this, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? Skip all the way down to verse 9. If my heart has been enticed by a woman, or I have lurked at my neighbor's doorway, may my wife grind for another, and let others kneel down over her. What are we talking about? It's pretty obvious as we think about what Romans 5 talks about and Job 31 talks about. We're not talking simply about an act. Thou shalt not commit adultery. You've said that. Jesus takes the standard even higher. Jesus takes the standard to our mind. Jesus takes the standard to our thoughts. Jesus takes the standard to our imaginations. Jesus takes the standard to the sense of what this desire is. It's not just the act. It is the desire itself. Outside of the bonds that Christ has set up, that God has set up within marriage, that sexual desire, that inordinate desire is wrong. That intention, that intentional look. In Greek, he has an intention. It's not just a glance. It's a look. It's a look. It's a look. It's a look. 
That look, that lustful look, Jesus says, has already an adulterous act. It's already an adulterous thing. And therefore, his response, just like Job's response, is amazingly strong. So this intention and this thought, it deserves hell. Think about that. It deserves hell. He says he would rather cut off his right hand, tear out his right eye. He would rather be totally useless, the most dominant hand, the most dominant eye. That would be better. Useless life here, better than lust. Better than the pleasure that lust would give. And I don't have to tell you what Job 31, 9 and 10 says. You can guess what that is. It's pretty obvious. As Job says, if that's going to be the case, then may my wife do the same thing. Lust for them is not something that is light. It's not something to be taken lightly. And what's interesting is what lust leads to. Because you see all these sexual sins listed on the screen there. Pornography, adultery, fornication, homosexuality, fantasies, etc. The beginning stage, the beginning step is that first thought. Dwelling on that thought, thinking about that thought, and then continuing to take the further steps after that. All of those forms of sexual immorality. An entire chapter in Leviticus dedicated to that. Wow. This is not something to be taken flippantly. It's not something to be redefined. It's not something to be rationalized. It's not something to be joked about. Jesus wouldn't have done that. Job didn't do that. Therefore, we shouldn't do that either. It's interesting uh, in Jen Wilkin has a couple interesting slides. Tim Challies put this up on his website. They were separated by only probably four or five days. But what's interesting is she says this about lust. Satan, we, we tend to think that we can overcome lust just by, quote, managing it. Instead of doing what we're going to see later today, killing it. I'll just manage it. I'll just be able to work it in such a way that I'll be able to kind of control it. We kill it. Second quote's even more interesting. Probably can't read it. But she says, lust is treating an object with contempt. It's something that consumes people. It consumes the other person. So this is not something that we treat lightly. It's not something that we clap for. It's not something that we joke about. It's not something we redefine. It's something that we sensitively look at and say, this is sin. This is sin. This thought, this intent is sin. Carl Henry, well known to say some interesting phrases, said this, and I like it. He said, the standard for sexual purity in the Bible is mental virginity. Mental virginity. I like that. That's very clarifying for us. So we don't lower the standard down. We might not reach the standard. I already said that. Remember that. No one reaches that standard all the time, perfectly, 100% of the time. But because of that, we don't say, well, let's move the standard down so we reach it more often. We don't do that. We don't do that. But see, lust is a much more comprehensive problem than just the sexual temptation that we might feel, the desire, as it were, for another person. 2 Timothy 2.22, we're not going to look at that passage. 2 Timothy 2.22 simply says this, flee youthful lusts. Notice, plural. Flee youthful lusts. 
And folks, we're going to hear that over and over and over again. Abstain, flee, run from, etc. This is not something we hug. It's not something we embrace. It's not something that we coddle. It's something that we leave behind. But what are youthful lusts in that context of 2 Timothy 2? It's things like always wanting to be right. It's things like fighting for the truth in a harsh and unacceptable way. It's like always wanting to defend yourself. Augustine, well known for his uh, escapades in lust, talked about, Lord, deliver me from the lust of vindicating myself. Always wanting to make sure everybody knows, I was, showing that I was right, I was right, I was right, you didn't understand me, etc. Those youthful lusts need to be fled from. 1 John 2, 15 and 16. I will look at that and read that if you would like to follow there with me. 1 John 2, 15 and 16. Remember, we're looking at this to see that this is more than just sexual desire. 15, 1 John 2, 15 and 16 says this. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So those lusts of the flesh, those lusts of the eyes, those lusts that this world tends to create around us in a way that shows that this is right, this is good, this is pleasurable, this is things you should want. These are the things that are part of life. John says, That if we allow ourselves to love those things, that disordered love of loving the world, what does it do for our love of God? Moves it away. We have replaced our love of God for our lust for the world, our lust for the things that the world gives, our lust for the things that the eyes see, that the pride of life gives us. So these lusts are much broader than just simply Sexual lusts. And the sin of lust is broader than that for us. Things that we should avoid and run from. Things of this world that cause us to no longer love God in an appropriate way. Why is this important? Why is it important for us to understand lust? For all of these sins. First Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2. Peter is talking about us, verse 11. 1 Peter 2, verse 11, he says this, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers. So that's an important factor for us to understand and grasp. The lusts are part of this world. The lusts are part of this sinful world. The lusts spring from our flesh and our eyes. But we are not part of this world. We are, as he says in verse 11, aliens and strangers. This is not our home. And therefore, our desires can be something different. Paul talks about in Colossians 3, we are to set our affections on things above, not on things of this world. Why? Because we've died and rose with Christ. We will come back and talk about that. Notice what he says, though. I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain, keep away from, hold at arm's length, run away from fleshly lusts. This is the why now which wage war against your soul. Our tendency would be to think, ha, this pleasureful lust is not, it's not a problem. There's no problem. I am still walking with the Lord. I'm still reading my Bible. I'm still praying. I'm still going to church. 
Peter disagrees. Peter disagrees. These lusts are warring against your soul, desiring to take parts of that soul for him, desiring to capture and imprison parts of those soul for him. Those lusts are desiring to take you. And notice, please, verse 12. We're not reading it, but it goes into the concept of witness. We often tend to think that our witness is often better if we can somehow fit into the world and align ourselves with the world so the world doesn't look at us as if we're funny. But he says we're supposed to have our, ex- our behavior excellent among the Gentiles, not so that we will win them to Christ, but notice what he says at the end of verse 12, so that they, observing all of the good that we do, the holiness that we are, the purity that we are, they will glorify God in the day of visitation. Whether they come to Christ or not, we, in terms of our lusts, are doing things different. We're walking away from them. We're keeping our habits and our conduct good so that people that see us one day when they stand before God will say, yes, yes, this person was, was a good witness. He was different. He was holy. But not only do these lusts war against our soul, turn a couple pages back to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, to see even further what these lusts do. Verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Both of those verbs are used, interestingly, for all of you men who like to fish, in fishing. So they put the worm on the hook, and the worm is sitting there on the hook, and the fish sees it. There it is, enticed him, pulling the fish in. And notice what it says. When lust has conceived, the lust meets up with the temptation. It gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it what? Brings forth death. So we've got destruction and death and ruin and war. Is there any other better reason? To say, if we can't glorify God by fulfilling our lusts, if all we're going to do is bring damage and ruin to us according to what the Bible says as opposed to what the world says, then it should be simple. It should be basic to be able to say, I shouldn't go that pathway. I shouldn't do these things. I shouldn't look that way. I shouldn't desire that thing. So how does the gospel help us? How does Jesus help us? How does gospel reality help us in this concept of dealing with our lusts? Romans 6.12, Ephesians 4.22, and Galatians 5.24 all say basically the same thing. Okay, we're going to only look at one of those verses. Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. Verse 24. Please pay attention to your verbs here, okay? Now, those who belong to Christ Jesus, and that is who? Every single believer, right? Those who belong to Christ Jesus, every single believer, have crucified the flesh with its passions and lusts. You see that? That historical reality, that historical truth, Romans 6 says the same thing. 
Ephesians 4 says the same thing. We have put off the old man with its lusts. We know that we have been crucified with Christ on the cross. Not only have we our flesh, but our flesh and all of their desires, all of their lusts have been crucified. A historical truth. A deep spiritual truth. That as Paul says in Romans 6, we need to know first of all, We need to count it as true second of all. And then we, by faith, take steps to say, I will no longer yield. I no longer have to be enslaved. I no longer have to say yes to my lusts. I can say no. I can flee. I can run. I can abstain. Because of what Christ has done for us in dying on the cross. We'll skip by Galatians 5, 16, and 18. You can look at that later. The spirit lusts against the flesh and the flesh against the spirit, the two arenas in which we potentially can live. Our identity is in the spirit. We are part of the spirit. We are tied with Christ and united with Christ, but we can choose to go back and live in the arena of the spirit. They are both fighting against each other. They are both lusting against each other. And therefore, we need to be people of this book. We need to be people who allow and give weapons to the, bot, to the, script, to the Spirit so that He has things to convict us of, things to direct us on with regard to these lusts, verses we can memorize in the darkness when the temptation comes to say, ah, the Spirit is guiding me and leading me. I need to walk in that direction. But I would like you to look at Colossians chapter 3, please. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. Now, this is the New American Standard. I'm going to read what it says, but I'm going to make it shorter because the Greek is shorter. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, lust, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Actually, I like the way they translate that, but the Greek word actually says kill, mortify, Kill, it's the only time in the whole Greek New Testament that that verb is is a command is right here. Yet Jesus talks about it in Romans 8 that we're to do the same thing. By the power of the Spirit, we are to put to death the passions and practices of the flesh. So, it's interesting. Either sin will kill us, lust will kill us, or we will kill lust. And the choice, interestingly, is ours. Is ours. And it's just as clear as a bell in Scripture. So what was I, my main theme today? What did I want you to remember? That it's an understanding and commitment to gospel reality that helps us to overcome lust. If that's what we want, we no longer want to coddle and embrace and somehow manage our lusts, then we want to understand gospel reality Commit to gospel reality. What does that mean? First thing is we need to understand the sin. This is the whole purpose of talking about the seven deadly sins. So that we can understand the gospel in all of its fullness and all of its glory, we have to understand sin in all of its depths. Sin makes us blind, stubborn, foolish, enslaved rebels. Every one of those adjectives I chose. Blind, Sin makes us so that we don't see. Stubborn makes us so that we don't want to repent. 
foolish because we end up going down stupid pathways like sexual immorality. Enslaved rebels, we constantly raise our fist. Not going to do what God wants. That's what sin does. And it's very insidious. It deceives us and lies to us. It tells us all about the pleasure that these lusts are going to give us and doesn't tell us anything about the results, doesn't tell us anything about the war or the destruction or the death. And what do we tend to do? Because of what sin does, sin doesn't just cause us to sin. Sin causes us to rationalize and redefine and diminish and somehow deal with sin in some specific way. It wants us to do anything and everything we can to somehow minimize our understanding of what sin is. Interestingly, in our desire to be sensitive and understanding and loving with regard to people who are struggling with sin, and I don't deny that, but please notice, we can diminish, excuse, and redefine sin to the loss of the gospel. Because you see, if our sin is just this small, then the gospel needs to be this small. But if our sin is this big and this bad, then the gospel needs to be this big and this bad. So you choose. Make your sin small, redefine it, rationalize it, diminish it, and then this is all the gospel you need. If it's big and powerful and strong and ugly and bad and destructive and warring against you, then we desperately need the good news. So the gospel is good news to the extent that we see our need due to our sin. And it makes the reality, the joy, and the depth of God's forgiveness in Christ to those who believe in him even greater. Even greater. Secondly, we need to understand again what the gospel does for us, and that's the concept of death. Just as much as we need to kill our lust, we need to understand that Jesus' death and resurrection has already laid the foundation for that. He has already done that historically, truly for us. So for us, this is an act, this is an act of faith to believe in this. Christ's death and resurrection, they are objective, they are true, they are legal, And so by faithful prayer, we make that subjective and real to us. The first step is obviously to trust in Christ, to acknowledge our sin, acknowledge our need, this great big need, this great big bad thing of sin, and acknowledge that his death and resurrection for us. And the fact that he himself is God is all we need to overcome sin. All we need to overcome our lust. After that, what are the things that we can do? First of all, we follow in his footsteps. We are constantly killing, constantly mortifying. Remember what Jen Wilkins said. We are not just managing sin, we're killing it. John Owen said, an occasional victory over sin is not mortifying sin. This is a lifelong battle, a lifelong never-ending battle. The key thing is, do we battle? Or do we just say, we, I struggle with this? When actually we don't struggle at all, we enjoy. We need to hate. We need to turn away. We need to run away. Secondly, there's something else we need to put on. Philippians 4, 8, and 9, and 2 Corinthians 10, 4, and 5 talk about the importance of our mind. So it's not enough to simply say, I won't lust, I won't lust, I won't lust, I won't lust, because you're, you're going to lust. Just constantly saying no and focusing on the sin, we have to replace it. 
And what Paul says in Philippians 4, 8, 9 is think about those things that are pure and honest and lovely and of good report and bring praiseworthy things. Think on those things regularly. Ephesians 4, 22 to 24 talked about putting on and putting off, but the key verb is the one that's a continuous verb in Greek, and it says, renew your mind over and over again. Ha, huh, I died to those things. I have put on Christ. I need to think about this regularly. And 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5 says, we are to submit all our thoughts to the obedience of Christ, pulling down everything that exalts itself against knowing God. And why is that important? Because our thoughts truly are the foundation, guys. Our emotions motivate us, our emotions push us, and our wills respond. And you can sort of keep going just by simply saying no, kind of getting your wills lined up and saying, I'm just going to say, just going to say no, just going to say no. But if your thoughts are not there, the will will not kick in because the emotions are going to drive you back to the other thing. Get your mind thinking properly. Align to the truth of what the gospel has done. Align to the truth of who Christ is and who we are in Jesus. And then thirdly, repentance is necessary. When I say repentance, I mean four things. Four things. Confession of your sin. I'm not saying you walk around every day to everybody and walk up to every girl or every guy and say, by the way, I just lusted for you. But I am saying before God, you need to bring that up and say, what I just did was wrong. That was a sin. It wasn't, I don't excuse it. It was a sin. Secondly, I need to take all responsibility for all the results that come my way. Thirdly, if any compensation is needed, I need to compensate. But fourthly, if I can plan not to do this again, I need to plan not to do this again. And that could be things like triggers. When is it? When is it that you are most susceptible to lust? Avoid those situations. Run from those situations. If it's like Joseph, leave your clothing behind and run. But get away. That's a trigger. Move away. Don't even enter into the triggers. Secondly, reasons to not lust. If you were here for my sermon on Bathsheba, I put up a long list of things on the screen that Randy Elkhorn said, these are the things that would happen if I committed sexual immorality. The list is amazing. If you don't know what it is, go Google. Randy Elkhorn's list about sexual immorality. You would be shocked. Those things, those reasons to not do this. Obviously the glory of God, but other reasons are necessary. Why? Because Satan has an awful lot of arrows in his quiver to get us to do this. We need just as many arrows to go back. Thirdly, accountability. Accountability that is clear, honest, and sufficiently strong. And then lastly, any type of filters for this stupid thing in our pockets and your computer screens and anything else. Those are part of repentance. That is part of the plan. But above all else, above all else, when we think about lust, when we think about any of these sins, but just lust itself, this is a disordered love, guys. We need to have a proper love. What does that mean? We need to love God. We need to love God with our whole heart, soul, strength, and mind. Quote from C.S. Lewis. Very nice. He's very great. I mean, Mike always talks about him. So lust is a poor, weak, whimpering, whispering thing compared with that fullness, excuse me, richness and energy of desire which will arise when lust has been killed. The desire for God. Richness and fullness of that when lust has been killed. And you watch and look at that and say, wow, that's what I wanted. I want God more. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that teaches us about this topic. It's a topic that's sensitive, a topic that's important. 
And yet, Lord, we fail many times to deal with this in proper ways. And I pray that today, as a result of listening to what the Word of God says, Lord, we have moved to a point where we can say, Ha, huh, I understand. I can overcome with a proper commitment and a proper understanding of what the gospel is. So, Lord, guide us as we do that. Guide us as we think, as we walk with you on this topic. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Here at our church, we celebrate the Lord's Supper every week.